Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Monday edition of Seven Investing Now. My name is Daniel Brooks Klein, and I'm the host of the program. I'm being joined today by Max Chatsko and Steve Simonton. Max, did you do anything fun this weekend? Weekends sort of <laughs> seem to me like weekdays light. Like we all still work a bunch, like, but like maybe Steve posts a photo that he's skiing somewhere. What was your weekend like? I didn't do anything fun. I actually did a lot of work. I'm a grocery shop and I don't know if that counts as fun anymore, but uh. <laughs> in, in the old world, I enjoyed grocery shopping in the new like mix of it's a little bit overwhelming with my vision to be in a grocery store slash I live in Florida. So like you'll have people with like their mask on their head or their, their mask around their neck and like not necessarily not as much here in South Florida, but still not great protocol. Steve, I know you went skiing. Did you do anything else fun this weekend? I didn't go skiing, actually. We decided not to. Uh, ah. But we did, we did go see Raya and the Last Dragon last night with the family, so that was fun. Now, and that's a documentary about the Last Dragon, if I remember correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's that's exactly what it is. But, now, so, Steve, you saw the movie in a theater, limited capacity, in a pod. What did it feel like being inside a movie theater? It was great. Um, we've actually seen a couple since they go our, our local AMC is already pretty spread out and they have the, the lobbies or the theaters themselves at 40% capacity and they make you place orders, uh, at concessions and, and bring them to you then. And it was great. So, um, yeah, that was a good time. We, we have a cinema grill near us in, uh, in Davenport at our second place where we, we spent last weekend and we'll spend next weekend. And I would go. The problem is that the movies are out are like Scoob and Tom and Jerry and Raya and the Last Dragon. Like these are not movies my 17-year-old son is all that excited to see. But with that, Seven Investors, our top story today, this is a big one. Over the weekend, the $1.9 trillion, that is right, trillion with a T, dollar stimulus package passed. Steve, what are the goodies? What are we all getting? And we're going to talk about what this means for the market. We, of course, would like your questions and comments as we go. Sorry, Steve, stepped on you a bit there. No, yes. Um, I uh, This is something we've kind of been talking about uh, for the past couple of weeks. And uh, it's not a whole lot different from what we saw in the House uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, It will have have direct payments of up to $1,400 per individual for most Americans. Uh, and Biden is saying that we should receive those payments, possibly uh, start receiving those payments by the end of this month, because they are looking to actually get this approved on Tuesday. Uh, there will also be a $300 weekly boost to jobless benefits into September, an expansion of the child tax credit for one year. Uh, also puts new funding into COVID-19 vaccine distribution and testing, rental assistance for struggling households and K-12 schools for reopening costs. And also $14 billion in payroll support for airlines. It seems strange to say also this, but uh, the third round of uh, federal aid for the airline industry, uh, that's in exchange for not furloughing or cutting workers' pay rates through the end of September. Uh, and airline contractors were set aside a billion as well. So We're going to come back to the airline industry. But before we do that, I'd like to get sort of a a top-level perspective from each of you. We knew this stimulus was coming. We knew this is roughly what it was going to look like. It's still not technically passed. There, there needs to be a House vote uh, because it's a it, the reconciliation process means it's slightly different from what they passed. But that's a formality. Should happen on Tuesday. Max, you go first. What's your top-line takeaway of what this means for the stock market? Well, I mean, the narrative last week was certainly uh, inflation fears and concerns. So 
I mean, $1.9 trillion is a lot of money. Um, and there is such a thing as too much money, right? Eventually the bill comes due. So I think this is eventually, maybe, you know, it doesn't look like it today, but it, it is going to add to inflation fears. And it also, you know, might impact our ability to, to pass other legislation. I mean, the Biden administration has talked about a big infrastructure bill. There's different mm-hmm. bills being kicked around or ideas for, for climate change, um, you know, bills. So, I mean, those are going to cost trillions of dollars as well. Are we actually going to be able to pass those? What happens if we do? I mean, you know, we're talking about like, what's the total cost of all this going back to last March, like $10 trillion. I mean, that is going to, you know, juice inflation. I think the Federal Reserve is going to have to break from its timeline there of keeping interest rates near zero till 2023. So that is going to impact what's going on in the stock market. So Max, we don't talk politics here. And Steve, I'll come to you in a second. But what we do talk about is you know how these bills affect and what we learned from a political point is just how narrowly divided congress is this was not a bipartisan bill this this was an exactly party lines bill where there had to be some sacrifices made in order to get things passed there is a bit of an echo if somebody has a has a, an open mic but uh that being said steve your thought what does this mean to the market uh as far as how the um the, the stimulus is going to impact the market. And, you know, it's obviously good news for you know, so-called reopening plays. Uh, that That's why we see a lot of these company these companies that uh, people perceive as uh, maybe maybe some of your value-oriented plays, but also businesses that should benefit from the economic reopening kind of rallying and a lot of these high-growth tech stocks falling. But I also don't think this means the end of high-growth tech businesses. They are creating real value. And a lot of their stories were accelerated by the pandemic. And I think we're going to see some of the strength coming out uh, in, in these these sort of richly valued companies over the next couple of quarters. They're going to realize that maybe some of them were justified. Some of them were definitely overheated, which is why we saw some a lot of, of kind of high flying stocks pull back. But um, really good news for reopening plays, but not the end of high growth tech. Yeah, and I'll give a good example. And and this is a, uh, a let's call it soon to IPO, soon to SPAC uh, company. Though they, ha- I don't think they've officially said that. I might be wrong. I placed an Instacart order today. And it's not because I can't go to the grocery store. The grocery store is is relatively safe. There's a Whole Foods three quarters of a mile away from me. I simply don't have time to go. That's not because of the pandemic. And sure, Instacart has benefited. Whole Foods, Amazon has benefited from the pandemic. But we're not going to stop doing convenient things. Like, like I had an infection in my finger and I got a prescription using a teledoc appointment. I'm not going to go like, you know what I really like? Sitting in doctor's waiting room. I can't, I, can't, I can't wait to go back to wait three hours for an 18-second appointment being surrounded by sick people. So I, I do think the whole demise of big tech is way overplayed. There might be some things that were more popular than we expected them to be because of the pandemic, but we're not getting rid of our Disney Plus subscriptions just because we're allowed to go outside again. Uh, so... If I could, if I could yeah, interject ahead, there, though. All right. So I think this is what people get wrong. It's not that these businesses are bad or not growing. It's that the price for that growth might be wrong. So these businesses might still be doing well. I don't think they're going to fail. I think, like Steve said, a lot of trends have been accelerated and pulled forward a year or two or three. But does it make sense to pay, you know, X times sales? We wouldn't have paid that 12 or 18 months ago. So I think that's what's missing. It's not that the businesses are bad. It's that the prices you're paying for that growth might be bad. I think it's going to be a question of timeline. When you look at some of these very inflated stocks, like I would argue that, say, Zoom 
10 years from now will be significantly bigger than it is now. But are you going to catch up to that in three years, in five years, in seven years? So it really depends on your appetite. If you look at a company and fundamentally believe it has the ability to, to branch out, to be much, much bigger, just be prepared for the fact that it might get punished. You know, Look, I own a very small amount of, of Carnival Cruise Line and Royal Caribbean stock. Carnival's up almost 100% since I bought it in October. There is nothing to justify that. On the other hand, there are some retail stocks that are down during that time period that have actually put up really good numbers. So you really need to zoom out and look at the long-term picture. We're going to get to your questions. We're going to get to your comments. But guys, with this, uh, this last bit of stimulus, we hope this is the last necessary stimulus because that will mean we're out of this. Do you expect a summer recovery, Steve? Uh, you know, add in vaccines being more widely available. Um, a summer recovery? Yeah, I I do. Um, I, I think there's been so much pessimism the last like year and a half that I feel like you know, and, and I'm admittedly sort of this perennial optimist. Like, oh yeah, you know, it'll be great. You know, the next couple of months from now. But uh, I really do think you know we're kind of down that home stretch. And, uh, you know, barring some absurd variant that comes in and and kind of launches us back into the Stone Ages, uh, I think we're on a fantastic trajectory. And uh, and I I think, um, you know, the the economy is is sort of poised, uh, sitting on this inflection point. And uh, and I think we're going to we're going to see pretty ferocious recovery uh, over the next several months um, as we sort of exit this, because I think everyone's eager. To not only get you know kind of back to normal, but uh, we're going to have massive stimulus coming in. And I mean, think about this: a family of of, of five is going to have over seven grand coming in, and uh, and, and you know, a lot of that's going to go into the stock market. You know, some of these younger people you see surveys, uh, but a lot of it's going to go you know toward um, you know it, it's it's more targeted than before. It's going to go toward things that people need. And, uh, and, and there's going to be a lot of, of money going into the economy that way. And uh, I think it will fuel uh, that recovery. Steve, we, we all saw that same story that said, you know, 52% of people who are, who are getting stimulus checks are going to invest in the stock market. Do you think that's a little bit inflated? Because I know income wise, I'm not getting any payments. I, I, right. Most people who are relatively well off for this particular round are getting absolutely zero so I feel like, I don't know, a lot of money is going to be spent on food and supplies and maybe clothing and things we need to get back to, you know, you know we've all worn sweatpants for a year. We might we might need new car, car repairs and all that good stuff. I mean, there's a lot of that that's going to happen. But I mean, the when we look at the the income limits, you know, the top end uh, for a married couple, 150,000 is is what it's going to be. And it's going to phase completely out by 160 this time. So I think that reduced the amount of people, the number of people, forgive me, uh, that will receive the stimulus by about 5%, which, you know, relatively modest change, I, I think. But uh, I think it is, it's better targeted this time because it doesn't phase out up to $200,000. Uh, but 75,000 in certain areas of the country really isn't that much money. And, uh, you know, when you talk about a, a single filer or someone who's, you know, married filing or uh, a household or something, um, you know, it's not it's not that much. And I think uh, the people who are getting it uh, are the people who are going to need it. But there's a group of people who don't necessarily need it, uh, who will still be receiving it. And they're going to have some some money to spend on things that aren't necessities. So had I been eligible, I would have spent it recklessly. So U.S. government, I would have been funding the economy. I would have been buying dinner. There would have been rounds of drinks on me. I am looking forward to a more normal world. We're going to get to airlines in a second. But before we do that, 
Max, you're you're our, our biotech person on this particular show. I'm pretty encouraged by what we're seeing with vaccines. We're starting to see lots of states uh, lower the age requirements. Here in Florida, it's uh, you know anybody that has a doctor's note that they're vulnerable. And here's a secret: go to any teledoc, and they'll give you a doctor's note. Like it, like this is not it is not particularly difficult to get a vaccine, and it's going to get looser and looser. Do you think enough of the country, despite what we're seeing, uh, is going to get the vaccine so we actually do hit herd immunity? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm encouraged by this. I think it's pretty much best case scenario at this point where we're at. Um, And we're going to get to a point, like, this is crazy to think about, but, you know, by the end of the summer, the United States is going to have too many vaccines. You know, we're going to be shipping them. (laughs) We're going to be shipping them to other countries, so kind of hard to, to think about now. Like, um, I mean, I'm waiting for my vaccine might be one of the last ones on the seven investing team here, but, uh, you know, I'll get it. I'm not worried about it. And yeah, in a few months, we're going to have too many as a country. So, um, just think about that. You know, we're going to be shipping them all over the place. As of this afternoon, uh, 50% of the seven investing advisor team will have at least one shot of vaccine. So, uh, that, that is encouraging and it's all for different reasons. I volunteered. Matt is a police officer working with vulnerable populations. Uh, Steve has a preschool in his house. We, we have all sorts of different legal. None of us, none of us cut the line. None of us did anything wrong. Max is waiting because he's young and healthy and, uh, uh, Max actually could have had the vaccine and, and chose not to, not because he doesn't want to, because he didn't want to cut his place in line. So that being said, I think we're weeks away from widespread of, uh, availability. We're seeing the shipment numbers go up dramatically. We're even seeing here in Florida, even places uh, being a lot more liberal about their leftover policy. You know, if you're waiting around at night, there's a decent chance if they have a few doses left because they've already gotten their employees at the grocery stores and the CVSs and places like that. We're going to talk airlines and stimulus in a minute. But before we do that, Sam Bailey, I want to share what we're going to do for the rest of the show. Do you have the uh, the big board to share? Okay, so we're talking the stimulus bill right now. After that, I'm going to talk, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, can GameStop make a di- digital pivot? Max is going to talk about electric utilities, and things are not going well for them. Steve is going to talk about NFTs, that is non-fungible tokens, and a $2.5 million tweet. It's actually bids starting at $2.5 million. Then on the home stretch, we're going to talk how to balance your portfolio. And then for the finisher, we're going to talk about the recovery of summer travel. As we do all of this, we're of course going to take your questions. I see some good ones. I see some very specific ones, guys. If uh, if you want any of the very specific ones, uh, certainly share it in the private chat and we'll get to those in between segments. We'll, we'll take some uh, questions about uh, the stimulus uh, and the market at the end of what we're talking about. But guys, I'm a little bit dismayed to see how much money we've put into airlines because I was actually kind of in favor of letting every airline except Southwest and maybe Alaska Airlines go out of business. And because they weren't going to go out of business, they would go bankrupt and there'd be different management and there'd be people who didn't waste a lot of money. But basically airlines have have held up their sort of necessary status as a way to just get endless money. Steve, am I missing something here? You're on mute, buddy. <laughs> oh, I thought he was doing a dramatic pause. <laughs> Mime time. Uh, the no, I I just um, you, they they did need the money. Uh, you know, as airlines did need this. It's just um, they're. I, I think shareholders are underestimating just how much longer this is going to take to kind of recoup for them. 
Uh, you know, there's a reason Buffett sold airlines back in May uh, or whenever it was, it was late April or May, or, you know, people were like, oh, he missed the rally and they rallied afterward and then crashed right back down. And then they, they kind of come back. But uh, he made a great point at the time uh, that airlines were, were you know, they're, ta they're taking this debt. Uh, and by all means, you know, that the, they're going to have to repay. And that eventually comes out of shareholders' pockets. And uh, they weren't fantastic businesses before the pandemic anyway. Um, you know, they were they were all right. I, I guess, uh, you know, there was nothing. Uh, mo so most of them weren't. <laughs> no. Yeah. And it was it was nothing so compelling that I felt the need to add them to my own portfolio. And uh, I was a little surprised that Buffett owned them in the first place. Um, but it was just, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not compelled. Uh, and you might get sort of some weird momentum swing because people are, are buying them uh, because they assume it's an easy reopening play. Uh, but as far as long-term sustainability for, you know, and, and consistent ability to create shareholder value, uh, I'm kind of meh. Um, and that's kind of where I find myself sitting with them. I'll, I'll throw the final question here to Max. Max, do you think there should have been more strings attached? The only string was basically no layoffs. And this to me is, yeah, I use the word appalling. I can't think of a worse word. It's awful. Yeah. And look at like in the European Union, right? They have strings attached to their bailouts for airlines specifically. So they said, yeah, we'll give you all this money, but we're going to tie it to emissions reductions over the long haul. And every airline said, okay, we'll do it. So society gets some benefit and airlines get money, right? But in the end, everybody kind of wins. And here in the US, we just kind of like, you know, old money bags, Uncle Sam just dishing out, uh, you know, $100 bills everywhere. Um, you know, and so it is a little ridiculous. I think there should be some strings attached. And just to add quickly to you know what what Steve was saying too, uh, I think airlines are going to take a little bit longer to recover. I think that is underappreciated. And also, if you look at what's going on in energy markets or oil, I think oil prices and gas prices and jet fuel prices they're going to get crazy this year. Like I think it's possible that in a few months that's a narrative that emerges as something that's maybe putting a lid on some of this economic recovery. I mean, oil prices right now are at like seven dollars a barrel. They're still keeping a lid on production globally. Um, we might see a hundred dollars a barrel sometime in 2021. No one's really talking about that now, but you know that could be a that could be a pretty big narrative uh, in the next few months here. There's also a lot of oil production that could be brought back online as prices go up. So yeah, oil in the United States with shale that can come on much more quickly than in other parts of the world. So that could end up being another benefit to the United States, and we can get our exports back on track. Uh, but still, I think, you know, we're going to see some some pretty expensive oil and gas prices here this year. I am prepared for that. I just bought a Prius. So <laughs> I got stunning miles on my first long trip with it. My my gas, I used 2.8 gallons of gas going about 170 miles, which is absolutely unbelievable. Better than advertised. We're going to take a couple of your questions before we get to what we're watching. Uh, Manesh Gamey says, apologies if you've talked about this already. Uh, Ari, all the noise uh, and chat around what could happen to the market, inflation, corrections, et cetera. How do you keep yourself grounded in these times? Uh, I try to tune out all this noise, except it's what I do for a living. So I don't have the option of like not checking CNBC or whatever yeah. business site. Steve, you can go first. How do you tune out the noise? Um, it's that. Yeah, I'd say the same thing. It's sort of like we watch this for a living, but you don't need to. Uh, if you're an investor, uh, a lot of a lot of times you'll find our takeaway is this isn't a big deal as it pertains to 
businesses, high quality businesses that are capable of allocating their capital and consistently creating shareholder value over the long term. Uh, most of the time, these kind of near term things, you know, in, in inflation, what the Fed's doing, who's in the White House uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, and, and, you know, you're going to get some some near term swings, but that's kind of why you focus on uh, just finding and buying shares of of great businesses that will thrive no matter what. And uh, and really, as far as keeping yourself grounded, it's you know, that's sort of the key to being a, a great investor is just <laughs> so many so much time in action. Uh, this yeah. isn't a basketball game. It often has the emotion of a basketball game where it's up and it's down. Your team's down 10 points. They're up 20 points. But here's the reality. There's no time limit. So if you played basketball forever, the better team would eventually win. And I know that's a weird analogy, but if you own Disney or Costco or Microsoft or whatever these great companies that maybe have been up and down a little bit, look at the 10-year chart. Look at the 20-year chart. There's going to be dips, but they're going to go up. If, you, if you're worried about this, go back and watch Friday's edition of 7 Investing Now. We really spent a lot of time dealing with this. I'll throw the next one to you, uh, Max. And we're going to come back to JE's question on electric batteries towards the end of the show. But Sandeep David asks, uh, COVID aided the internet companies because we couldn't go outside. On the contrary, with the ever-increasing cybersecurity threats, do you foresee the internet itself being shut down for a period in the future? Dear God, you can't shut down the internet. All my stuff's on the internet. Max, your thoughts here. Yeah, I don't think the internet's going to get shut down. There's obviously some you know, increasing geopolitical risks or however you want to say it, right? You know, look at the big powers of the world. They're all ramping up their cyber, you know, uh, security, cyber threat, all that stuff. Um, no, the internet's not going to go down. I mean, uh, if, if the internet goes down, we have some bigger problems to worry about, you know? Uh, there's there's uh, jets getting in the air and things like that. So hopefully that doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, final question we'll take in this section is, uh, Ash asks, do you think airlines are great businesses in the short run? We don't make short run calls, but they're, it's definitely not a great <laughs> business. Might the stock price go up? Yeah, airlines might see a rise. Now, Southwest is a really well-run airline that I've dug into. And I think, and I may actually buy some Southwest because I think they have the capital to take over routes and slots and other things that other airlines make short-term decisions on getting rid of. That said, it's such a capital-intensive business. I'm not a giant fan. Like we've, we've talked about how much I love going to casinos. I don't invest in casinos because you know what they have to build? Casinos. They're really expensive <laughs> and, and they have to redo them every 10 years. Like every 10 years you go to, you know, Harris or the link or whatever it is and they have to redo all the rooms. That is not cheap. Steve, Max, anything you want to weigh in to close out on airlines here? No, I, I think. And uh, and it's worth uh, noting, we, we spent a little bit of time on airlines about uh, maybe 10 minutes ago. So you can rewind this live stream and, and take a look at our comments on them. Uh, but we did touch on that just a little bit. Uh, not and and this is all around, but uh, with, some, with some exceptions. Somewhere after the show, it's usually about three or four hours after, but there will be a full transcript that will be searchable on our site. Uh, it depends. We use a, a software product that takes a couple hours. Then I go through it to clean it up. It's not always the same day, but it's usually the same day. And of course, we also have the amazing power of Yext on our site. What is Yext? It's contextual search. So if you want to know anything we've talked about, you're like, I think Dan talked about that three weeks ago on 7investing now. You go to our site, you type it in, and there's a really solid chance that you're going to find it. It's, a, it's still a work in progress, but it is really exciting. That is 
a benefit for everyone because these transcripts are, of course, on the free side of our site. But if you're a member, if you join 7investing, you're able to access all of our paid content using that same contextual search. So you might find, oh, wow, I was interested in that company. Steve wrote something about that company or it was a recommendation I didn't even notice because it was six months ago. So if you'd like to become a member, it is $17 a month or $170 a year. Steve Simonton, where do they go to sign up? 7investing.com forward slash subscribe. Uh, pretty straightforward. You have any questions, uh, you can also send us a note, but uh, uh, 7investing.com forward slash subscribe. You can see what we have to offer and uh, you get access to all of our, our uh, premium content. And we love talking with our subscribers uh, about some of the specific questions about our recommendations that we sometimes get. We are the best value in investing. When things are scary, you want to be a 7investing member. Here's the thing. If I didn't work here, I'd be a seven investing member because it's valuable to hear, I'm not buying this company for today. I'm not buying this company because of what it's gonna do during or after the pandemic. I'm buying this company because I have researched it top to bottom. I believe in management. I believe in strategy. I believe in what they're gonna do long-term. You're not getting better, more thought out investing advice anywhere else on the internet. Please don't take down the internet. That is also where most of the seven investing stuff lives. Let's move on to what we're watching. I don't usually do one of these, Steve. So I want to talk for a few minutes here and feel free to interject. But <laughs> I hate to get involved in this whole GameStop nonsense. But I will say I am not a fundamental believer in GameStop's ability to pivot its business. So one of the things people who pretend they're not just buying this as a momentum stock, that they're buying it because of fundamentals, is that they believe that GameStop is going to be able to pivot to a digital business. So woke up this morning and GameStop shares were up 11% in pre-market trading. Why is that? Because Chewy co-founder Ryan, uh, Ryan Cohen has been added to, uh, he's on the board, he's been added to a special committee to chair their digital transformation. Here's the problem. Steve, do you have a video game console? Do you, do you have an Xbox in the house or a PlayStation? Yeah, we've got a Switch and an Xbox One. Yeah. I, I, I have the new Xbox, a PlayStation 4, and a Switch. And do you know how I get games for those? Yeah. Well, I download them. <laughs> and on the new Xbox, which I bought on the Microsoft, uh, you know, you pay $28 a month or whatever it is, I get access to hundreds of games, including all the EA games. So if you think GameStop can pivot to digital, what exactly is it they're digitally going to sell? And we'll talk about NFTs because there is some possibility there. But I don't need a middleman to sell me video games. So Chewy is a success story, not because Ryan Cohen is a visionary, but because Amazon didn't have pet toys during the pandemic. Chewy is a fine company. They have amazing customer service that people stay members once they're there. But I was an Amazon member. I wasn't gonna order kitty litter on Chewy before the pandemic. But when Amazon said, eh, we're not really gonna prioritize certain things, a lot of people had to go to Chewy. That was great for their business. This was not some sort of brilliant modeling. Max, am I missing something? If the core product at GameStop is games, and I don't need to buy games from them in the store or digitally, what exactly is this pivot going to look like? Are they going to show like old cartoons? Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, uh, actually, the disk drive on my PlayStation 4 broke, so I only download <laughs> games. And now with like the newer consoles with solid state drives, you can download things in like ridiculously short times. So, I mean, that's the future. You're not going to have game libraries and physical, you know, cases and things. It's going to be all, you know, on your console digitally. So I agree with you. And even, you know, people who make a case for the physical store, because I, I go into GameStop every time I'm in a mall. 
But if I find a game on GameStop that for some reason I want to buy, maybe it's an old nostalgic something that I'm not getting for free, I still go home and have to spend like three or four hours downloading updated content. Now that's improved as my internet connections have improved and we're getting fiber, so that should even be better here. But for all of you who read this and they're like, oh, this digital leader is taking over their pivot, there needs to be a market to pivot to. And in this case, I don't think there is. So what's my advice? Don't invest in GameStop. If you own GameStop, be happy that it's up and sell it. Max, what is your... Oh, Steve, go ahead. Jump in. Feel free. One more thing to add. Um, I I think... I, I'd be remiss if I didn't note, you know, that there could be a little bit of underestimation going on uh, with the potential size of, of digital markets that it's it's considering tackling. Whether it will succeed to that end or those ends is is a completely different story. But I mean, we're talking, you know, e-commerce and and esports uh, in particular. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see, you know, they come out and and uh, look at like some streaming services. You know, I saw they hired some AWS uh, engineers, and uh, you know that was that was sort of, sort of some of the news. Um, but not just digital content, um, but you know, community stuff and online trade-ins and esports and you know, game streaming and that kind of stuff. There are options. Uh, but it's going to be a tough road to hoe uh, for GameStop. So, so we'll see. Um, and, but and you're, you're, uh, you're maybe they'll with, prove us wrong. You're competing with Twitch. You're competing with YouTube. Yeah. To, to an extent, you're competing with the, uh, the Apple subscription service. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. That in my notes here, it says social media Twitch competitor. That is a really difficult niche to find. And look, if GameStop transformed its stores into experiential space, Maybe they could extend that so you're a member of kind of a club and you want to play that at home. Mm -hmm. But they're very small stores. They're not big footprints. And most malls, at least most of the malls I've been into, now have those sort of uh, pop-up, you know, virtual reality headset gaming spaces. I I think that ship may have sailed. But we're going to move a little bit. And Max, you wanted to talk about electric utility stocks. Uh, They're getting crushed, and there's good reason for that, right? Yeah, so <clears throat> electric utilities have been just getting hammered in the last maybe three and a half months or so. Uh, and a lot of this has to do with, again, concerns over inflation. So historically speaking, this does kind of make sense. Um, you know, when inflation increases, usually interest rates increase as well. Um, and in, during inflationary periods, you know, prices are rising, labor wages are, are rising, so labor expenses are, are increasing. Um, now, as an electric utility in the United States, very heavily regulated outside of Texas. Sorry, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I got to dig at Texas anytime I can. Um, you know, so like when the price of your inputs, your fuels increase, right? Natural gas costs go up, coal prices go up. You have to eat that cost. Electric utilities can't increase the price of electricity because the price of electricity is set by public utilities commissions only so many years. Um, you know, so it's, it's not a good time for uh, electric utilities, historically speaking. Uh, additionally, if interest rates are rising, um, you know, that makes the cost of debt go up. And, you know, electric utilities are some of the most capital intensive businesses on the planet. So historically speaking, this does kind of make sense why Wall Street is concerned. Max, were these ever good investments? It, it seems to me like th- there's just so much volatility here that I don't know, it seems really difficult to invest in utilities. Well, so electric utilities are actually... Uh, can be some of the best investments you make. A lot of them, or the most, the best well-run utilities do tend to uh, beat the S&P 500 when you look at total returns. A lot of them pay very nice dividends. 
Uh, but a lot of this is, you know, based on where they are in the country. Um, and I think actually the market's getting a lot of this wrong based on, you know, the historical comparisons are no longer valid. Uh, again, you have to look at this on a case by case basis, but there's a lot of utilities that have ridiculous shares in their power mix of renewables. So the cost of the wind and the cost of the sun don't go up when inflation rises, right? Um, there's no fuel expenses for these modern renewables. Um, so you're seeing a lot of these expenses roll off the income statement altogether. Um, so I think inflationary concerns are going to be much uh, less of a risk going forward for some of the best position utilities. And additionally, there's this new thing that's forming a new market for something called green bonds. So, you know, everybody and Steve's second uncle wants to own green bonds because they want to be able to brag about their, you know, climate bona fides, right? <laughs> um, so the market for green bonds, the interest rates you can get on a green bond is always lower than what's available in the traditional markets. So electric utilities can get green bonds. Some of these are issued by states, um, you know, at much more favorable prices. And then they're called green bonds because you're supposed to use the money and the capital to invest in renewable energy projects or clean energy projects. Utilities are also going to have to start building out a lot of electric vehicle charging infrastructure. Uh, they need more supply to be able to um, meet the demand for electric vehicles, right? That's a whole new sudden like once in a lifetime growth opportunity for electric uh, utilities. Um, so again, the combination of moving to renewables, which don't have fuel expenses, and then the emergence of green bonds, which are lower cost forms of debt. Uh, I think the market's getting a lot of this wrong just by looking at historical comparisons. They have to look at how the world's changing. So I think if you look at some of the best run electric utilities, they've taken a big hit recently. Some of them are a little bit expensive, uh, but over the long run, I mean, I think there's some good bargains that are out there. So Max, one of the things we you have on the document here in the script here is a question from Cheyenne Clement. And she said, Volvo said they're going 100% electric by 2030. 2030 sounds like it's a long time from now and is less than a decade away. Uh, other companies are making similar pledges. GM just released their electric Hummer trucks. Uh, she says it looks way better than the Tesla Cybertruck. That is not a compliment. It is not hard to look better than the Tesla Cybertruck. <laughs> Any thoughts on who is best positioned to compete against Tesla in the e-car market? Max, you put this in, so I'm assuming you wanted to answer it. I did not put this in, I don't think, but I'll oh. answer it. Hey, <laughs> so I actually think that narrative is uh, not correct, right? Everyone talks about competing with Tesla. Tesla's going to be fine, whether it's the only electric vehicle manufacturer or everyone's making electric vehicles, right? I think that's pretty well established. And look, everyone, every major automaker has plans to go full electric or mostly electric. That's not changing. And it's not really going to change much for Tesla. Tesla's still going to sell Teslas. People are still going to want to own and buy Teslas. And it has all these other things in its ecosystem with the Powerwall, although that maybe doesn't make so much sense right now. But maybe by 2030, you can get solar. Um, just the different tech-enabled services that come with the Tesla that, you know, Ford or Volvo might not have. Um, but yeah, the market is going towards, you know, electric vehicles. And um, that doesn't really change anything for any of these these automakers, I don't think. I think the bigger question is which legacy automakers aren't going to succeed in, in electric and market share. Some of that will go to Tesla. But if it's Volvo that does it best, if it's Toyota that does it best, if it's GM that does it best, they'll take share from each other. Like I bought a Prius because when I read every single thing ever written about electric cars, that clearly seemed to me like the most reliable, most efficient hybrid that was going to need the least repairs. Admittedly, I based a lot of that on consumer reports. Let us move on to Steve's What We're Watching. Steve, Jack Dorsey, he is the CEO of Twitter. He is the CEO of Square. Um, I picture him changing outfits every time he 
he switches back between the companies, but that's that's an old Brady Bunch plot. He probably does not do that. He's offering to sell the first tweet. I don't even know what was said in the first tweet as a non-fungible token or NFT. Can right. you please explain? I don't know what many it's, of those words mean. It, it was an old tweet from like 2006, and it said, setting up my Twitter. It was like TWTRR or something like that. <laughs> uh, it was the very first tweet ever. So sort of what started all this, right? And Twitter is obviously huge uh, now. But uh, I guess first, you know, we talk about um, he's selling this as a non-fungible token or NFT. You're going to hear about NFTs a lot more uh, in the coming years. These are unique digital objects. Um, so hence the non-fungible part, right? By comparison, most cryptocurrencies are fungible assets, meaning their units are all equal. So it's like dollars to dollars or one Bitcoin equals another Bitcoin. They're all the same value. Uh, they, But NFTs can't be exchanged for another identical item. They are unique. They're one of a kind digital assets. So in Dorsey's case, he's literally selling the world's first tweet, an obvious one-of-a-kind digital item, and he's essentially giving the highest bidder trackable ownership of the tweet, which will be recorded on a blockchain digital ledger. Now, this is the same thing uh, where people store uh, you know, their, their Bitcoin portfolio or whatever, or Ethereum, whatever they own, is going to be stored on this blockchain digital ledger uh, that is immutable, right? You can't change this. Um, and uh, you know, each, again, we have to reiterate, each NFT is unique, it can't be duplicated. And this sort of makes them uh, kind of rare collector's items that no one else can claim. And right now, the current high bid, I think, is from the CEO of Bridge Oracle. His name's Sina Estavi. Uh, high bid's $2.5 right now. Uh, and I really do think, you know, that this is the start of a broader adoption and acceptance of NST, NFTs as a viable way to offer and claim, claim ownership of digital assets. And really, the repercussions uh, are going to be wide uh, and far-reaching as it pertains to people's ability to monetize digital assets. Steve, can I bid on the second tweet ever, which was someone trolling the first person and, ca and calling them one political insult or another? <laughs> yeah. You're actually starting to see the sports leagues use this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, So maybe you are the only person who owns footage of LeBron James, you know, I don't know, you know, dunking while while wearing a suit of armor or whatever right. ridiculous thing it is. Is this the start of a new collectibles market? And I ask that, Steve, because sports collectibles are notoriously finicky. A card that might be worth a million dollars today might be worth $50 10 years from now. Yeah. Does this have uh, that kind of collectibles market risk? I think it's I think it's bigger, uh, both on the risk and its reach. Uh, you know, we're seeing this uh, apply to artwork. Uh, digital artwork that people are doing. And I think Kings of Leon put out an album or something that's going to be sold as an NFT where only one person will be able to actually claim ownership. Of course, you know, you'll have sort of, you know, you can go watch those videos on YouTube, but you can't say, I own this. This is mine. You know, who owns it? This guy, because I put in a $2.5 million bid or whatever. And, uh, and that's, it's sort of, you know, it seems silly to people today to say like, oh, you own like a digital asset, but how many people, you know, 15 years ago would have said like cryptocurrencies, you know, Bitcoin worth $50,000, like, but, and yeah, there's going to be a lot of risk and there's a lot of risk that people are going to overpay for things that they are very, um, you know, saying some like anime, like NFT that someone is like totally hardcore fan and, uh, you know, nobody else thinks it's worth the $5 million they paid for it. Like, of course, 
but you're also going to see people, you know, probably telling ridiculous stories about paying, you know, 130 bucks for some uh, some tweet. Uh, and it's interesting if you go look at Jack Dorsey's tweet. Um, Shortly afterward, he posted a link to, I think it's called Valuables by Cent or something, a uh, platform where you can buy NFTs. And one of the other tweets that the fellow who currently has the high bid on Jack Dorsey's very, or the first tweet ever, uh, also, he's been buying up other tweets uh, that he thinks are interesting. And one of them he paid like 138 bucks for. So it's kind of tempting to be like, hey, let's throw this out and see if I can make $1,500 on this tweet, you know, but um, it's going to be really interesting to watch how people can monetize digital assets and NFTs are, they're a thing. Um, and and uh, actually an article from Wall Street Journal this morning pointed out the NFT market uh, was worth, I think it was like 338 million at least in transactions. Yeah, up, last year. Up, up from like 40 million in 2000. Yeah, so, I mean, we're talking about a, you know, eightfold increase uh, in transactions. And I think it's only going to get crazier from here. So I think the art market is really the good comparison here, because if I buy a unique piece of artwork, whether it's for $100 or $20 million, it's not really about the resale value. It's about the joy I get from that artwork. Like, you know, I, I have some pieces of art, whether they were done by my uncle Howard, who was an artist or, or friends of mine uh, mm-hmm. who've done things that it's not what they're worth. I'm not going to sell them. It's that they're on my wall and and I enjoy them. I think that's what some of this is going to be. I think you're also going to see sort of a new type of collectible, like go to the famous tweet museum where you're going to get access to uh, you know unbelievable tweets. I think there's going to be all sorts of uses for this. If you're interested in NFTs, we're actually going to talk more about this with Simon Erickson uh, on Wednesday's show. We also have a podcast coming. I won't say which day because I'm not entirely sure. Uh, But we're going to have a podcast coming, I believe, this week that gets really into the NFT market. Uh, Oh, Steve, jump ahead. Yeah. And uh, and on a related note, uh, actually, uh, Ash, who in a previous um, comment on our YouTube stream here just said, just subscribe to your paid service. Smiley face. Welcome, Ash, uh, (laughs) to our paid service. He also asked. Uh, are you guys bullish on cryptocurrencies? Uh, we have a partnership with a company called CryptoEQ. That's CryptoEQ.io. And we do uh, podcasts with them once a month as well. Uh, so as for crypto questions, we focus most on equity securities and the stock market side. We let them, the experts in cryptocurrencies, kind of answer those questions. So uh, maybe check them out and listen for that podcast coming up as well. Steve, that ties in incredibly well. It was like you knew we were doing a seg to the home stretch. Because here, here's the question on the home stretch. And this comes from Scott. I'm not going to read the whole email, but he wants to know how do you balance your portfolio? And he doesn't just mean stocks, he means do you hold on to cash? Do you have gold? Do you have real estate holdings? Whatever it is. And I will say, I'll go very quickly first, then I'll go to Steve, then I'll go to Max. I will say I have a portion of money I invest uh, every week. Uh, I have money automatically transferred in, and I consider that separate from anything else. I own a second piece of property, which we own outright, that I consider more a bank than an investment. It is uh, it is worth a little more than we paid for it, uh, but we've probably spent that money. Hard to factor in the enjoyment we've gotten out of using it. So I consider that more of like a hedge against cash uh, type. But in general, I don't own gold or crypto or any sort of... I own shares of good companies that I plan to hold forever. I suspect that's going to be true of both of you, but you may also have some hedges. Steve, you're up first. Uh, I don't hedge at all. Uh, you know, and, you know, I, I, um, I, I think as far as kind of allocating money, you know, it's it's a good idea to um, you know max out your retirement avenues if you can, your Roth IRA and your traditional IRAs or 401k if you have access to it. Um, also taxable brokerage accounts. And, uh, you know, really just for me, 
It's about buying shares of great businesses, holding them over the long term and watching that value compound. And uh, I think I can do uh, enough diversification uh, when it comes to maybe biotech or kind of value oriented insurance stocks or high growth tech stocks um, that I, I'm not really concerned about doing hedges. I don't own gold. I've never done that. Uh, and I haven't really started personally dabbling in crypto because I have my hands full. Uh, with the the you know equity securities market anyway, and um, really you know that that'll probably change um, as I see opportunity there. But uh, I, I'm not particularly concerned with with hedging in particular, uh, and uh, I can balance my portfolio well uh, across different types of equities. I, I consider my hedges, uh, and again we've talked about this many times. I'm a little older than than everybody else in the team. I consider like owning Costco stock a hedge. Like Costco is not going to collapse. I consider right. Microsoft ahead. So a lot of my portfolio is fairly conservative and I buy shares of some of the risky things you guys recommend as a way to almost hedge against my own conservativeness. Max, yeah. your answer here. Yeah, so I, we can see the full question. So he also asked about, you know, if you guys do certain budget strategies and he said he feels that if he can better save and allocate, then he can also um, better accumulate wealth in his portfolio. So one thing that's made a huge difference to me, and I'm 30 years old, you know, I'm the youngest one here, not bragging, but you know, uh, <laughs> so um, one thing that I've done in like the, my late twenties, I started doing something in my monthly budget called annualized expenses. And it's exactly what it sounds like, right? So I take certain expenses I know come up throughout the year or sometimes every two years, right? Different subscriptions I have that I pay annually or like car insurance, I pay once every six months. Right. I pay less than if I paid monthly. So I know that expense is coming up every six months, but every month I put one sixth of that away in a special bank account. I also do this for things that are a little less predictable. Like I know I have certain amounts of car maintenance that come up, right? You don't need new tires every year, but you know, you need new tires every, you know, 40,000 miles or so. So I put money away every month for car maintenance and, and even like appliances, right? Dan, I mean, you're always buying laptops for you, your wife, your neighbor, everybody, right? <laughs> So there, there's nine of them in my house right now. Uh, yeah. I believe we only own eight of uh, seven of those nine, though. So, you know, tech gadgets are going to fail or the battery's going to go or whatever. Something new and shiny comes out. So I put money away for that as well. So every month I put away a certain amount of money in all these different categories uh, as annualized expenses. And then when that expense comes up, the money's paid for. I don't have to put on a credit card. I'm not tempted to dig into my emergency fund. So I don't have to worry about it. And that doesn't make me, you know put less money in my portfolio one month because I have to pay car insurance this month, right? Um, so the concept of annualized expenses is one of the, the most important things I've done in my monthly budgeting uh, that's also had these ripple effects in terms of uh, how I put money away for you know my portfolio. Take it to max to be a step more organized than the rest of us because I essentially <laughs> do what you do, but I just mentally think of it as my gonna need a new roof fund because when I was younger, when we didn't have as much money, when you know we were we were struggling, you'd buy a, a house and you'd go, oh, at some point I'm gonna need a roof. And that's a terrifying expense. You know, it can be you know twelve thousand dollars to buy a new roof. Well, now I just go with the assumption that I don't know what's gonna go wrong. Uh, we're, we're living in a rental at the moment, so if something breaks here, that's not an issue, but we don't know if a car is going to break down. We don't know if there's going to be a dental emergency. We don't know if uh, something is going to go wrong at our other house, whatever it is. I just always assume there's going to be a major expense over the course of a couple of years. And we've talked about this. When we bought our vacation property, we had it checked out and we knew in the first three years we owned it, we would need an air conditioner and a new roof. 
What we did not know is that a storm would hit 31 days after we bought it. Uh, and I say 31 because our insurance bound at 30 days. So we did get some insurance money for the roof, but that my roof would go. And that while I was fixing the roof, my AC, which was fine when I got it checked out, would die. So I planned on spending about $12,000 in three years, and I spent it in 32 days. So the good news is the, the converse happens. I budgeted that money. I spent the money. It is very unlikely I would need a new roof or air conditioner. In fact, there's some warranties involved in both cases, uh, unless something abnormal happened. We're going to hit our finisher in a minute or two. Before we do that, Max, I'm going to ask you to queue up uh, JE's question and read it to the audience. And if you have any last minute questions you'd like a, to ask us, feel free to try to get them in. But Max, JE had a question on batteries you wanted to answer. Yeah, the very beginning. All right. He asked the question, uh, random question, since we're talking about potential IPO in tech, any word on Redwood going public? It's a battery recycling company run by former Tesla exec. So I don't have any information about when it goes public, but I will say the idea of recycling batteries sounds like it's a massive opportunity, but there's actually not a whole lot of opportunity or reason to recycle lithium ion batteries. Lithium is like one of the most abundant things on the planet. We have way too much of it. We keep finding more of it. There's more in the United States, for instance, that we're not currently mining at all. There's some companies working on that. Um, and a lot of the you know more expensive metals that are in there in trace amounts um, and battery chemistries are constantly changing. So we're using less cobalt going forward. We're going to be using less nickel. Um, you know, when solid state batteries come out, they're going to use even stranger materials on the periodic table. And the ultimate chemistry, like the ideal chemistry, is one that uses these abundant materials and, and almost nothing else. Um, so this this idea of recycling batteries, I know it sounds like it's a huge opportunity, but it's probably not as future proof as you think, and it might not actually pan out quite as well. So I would just uh, maybe be a little more cautious there, right? There's it's, this goes in. I always talk about this, but there's a lot of these good stories that come out, especially in this market, right? I mean, we could start a bakery that, you know, a digital bakery and spack it tomorrow, and we'd probably make a bunch of money if we had a really good website and, and some cool investor slides. Um, so everyone's really familiar with the bullish case of a lot of these companies, but there's not a whole lot of objectivity sometimes in some of these conversations. So uh, investors need to be a little more careful, I think. I bake an excellent digital muffin. I was actually at Disney Springs over the weekend, and there's apparently a new cookie store there that has a four or five hour wait. Unless the cookie has the chance of like being worth a million dollars, I don't care what the cookie is. I'm not waiting for four or five hours for a cookie. Could Steve, we could we put the uh, the cookies on the NFT? Could we do that? We 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 could, and I'm sure <laughs> there will be seven investing NFT. No, there will not be because uh, we have one product. That is our picks each month, our membership, $17 a month or $170 a year. There are no upsells. There are no more expensive new services. It is just, and I say just, that is not doing justice for what you're getting. <laughs> our seven most highest conviction stock picks each month, access to us in member calls, all sorts of great things. Before we hit the finisher, Steve, I see a question from my uh, longtime friend, Chris Morley. Let's I close out with that. Why don't you jump in with it? Yeah. So he says uh, this uh, <clears throat> pertaining to our conversations about IRAs and stuff. This begs a question for me. Is there an alternative to the Roth IRA for people whose income is higher than the cap for contributing to something like that? <clears throat> yes. Um, there are a couple options that, you know, and you obviously want to consider them very carefully because there are different repercussions for how they're sort of taxed. But there's an option called a non-deductible non IRA. 
which would actually allow you to um, put in money that you've already paid taxes on and then uh, capital gains and dividends that you actually um, realize in the account aren't taxed, but then it's sort of taxed as you remove. So you could save yourself some money with a non-deductible IRA if your income is too high to qualify for a Roth. Uh, there's also something called a backdoor Roth. Uh, which sounds super shady, <laughs> but it's legal. Uh, it, it involves uh, contributing to like a traditional IRA and then rolling it into a Roth IRA at a later date. Um, so you can kind of, you got to be kind of smart about how you do it, but uh, yeah, take a look at those options and, you know, obviously consult a tax professional, uh, but non-deductible IRAs and backdoor Roths are an option for people wh whose income are too high for those options. So uh, just a couple things to look at. And if, if uh, Chris is self-employed or has his own business and that's how he earns income, there's yeah. other opportunities for that, like the SEP IRA, Yes. Uh, it's called the self-employed pension plan or something. I don't, I don't know what the SEP stands for, but SEP RA. And you can save, depending on how you structure it, 20% or 25% of your income. And it, you can also, as an employee, contribute the traditional IRA limit. So another $6,500 in 2021. Yeah. So that's a good way. If you own a business, you can save like, I think the limit's like $58,000 a year or something crazy. And um, yeah, that's that's a fantastic point. And one more option that uh, people kind of almost forget about is just being more tax efficient with your regular taxable brokerage account. Uh, Long-term capital gains for stocks that you've owned for at least a year are taxed at much lower rates uh, than stocks you've owned for less than a year. And you know, you're trading, you're paying your regular tax rates if you buy and sell these things over and over again. So uh, consider you know focusing on long-term buy and hold and uh, realize long-term capital gains or, or just let those gains compound and uh, you don't pay taxes until you actually you know sell those and uh, and realize them. So, and of course, you can buy stocks on the exchange in Panama, which would be a David Lee Roth IRA. <laughs> so, Steve, it is now time to hit our finisher. Sam Bailey, bring up the graphic if you could. Thank you, Sam. Do you think the travel industry will have a massive rebound this summer? Uh, didn't have time to let this poll finish, but the actual finish numbers came out uh, even more overwhelmingly in favor of yes. 17.4% uh, no, 22.4% said too soon to tell. I'm going to jump in and say that it's going to be somewhere in between. It takes time to plan trips. So yeah, people like me, when it's safe, who love to travel, who have been booking trips for a year out, hoping that they happen, we're going to travel. So there'll be an increase. But Steve, I'm not so sure you're going to like jump on a family vacation immediately. Where did you weigh in on this particular one? <laughs> I'm jumping on a family vacation. Later. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's a. Uh, uh, I think we're going to see a pretty good rebound. Uh, I'm not sure I would quantify it as massive, uh, but I, I do think people are itching to get out, and uh, I, I think we're going to see a, a pretty healthy uh, recovery for the travel industry. So uh, I, I probably would have voted yes on this, with the caveat that maybe I wouldn't have used the uh, the massive verbiage. But uh, yeah. Yeah, Chris Morley, who we just talked about, talked about, uh, points out that international travel is going to take a while to recover. Yeah, that's a tough thing. So I know that I plan, and Max, I'll throw to you in a second, I plan to get to England as soon as I can because my, my brother just took over as the uh, chief commercial officer for, uh, for Tottenham in the Premier League. And I, I'd like to see some games. I have some friends in Europe. I'd like to visit them. But that is not something I can particularly plan now because we don't know what vaccine passports are going to look like. I can't fly over there and quarantine for two weeks. So there's definitely going to be some of those issues. Max, when does your world tour start or at least your, your national tour? Yeah, you can check my website for uh, the full tour dates. But um, no, uh, I think I think massive is the right term. Steve, how dare you take uh, take you know issue with that word? 
Um, <laughs> I, I think there's going to be a big, a big increase in travel, obviously, I mean, relative to last year, but maybe even compared to 2019, I think there's a lot of pent up demand. A lot of people are going stir crazy. They want to get out. People my age too, who aren't, you know, weighed down by family responsibilities are definitely going to be traveling. Um, so I, I think it's, there is going to be a pretty big increase. But again, like I said earlier, watch out for oil prices. I think they're going to sneak up on people this year and that's going to become a narrative. I'll just close out this topic with uh, seven investing now hosted live from Las Vegas, not too <laughs> long from now. Steve Simonton, there's one more comment from Daniel Delgado. Why don't you read it and uh, close out on a positive note here? Daniel, thanks. The reason I picked seven investing subscription, I'm glad you reviewed great companies, not momentum stocks. Your podcast shows are so valuable. Thank you. Uh, we we don't uh, like to, to focus too much on momentum names. Uh, we like to focus on solid long-term businesses that often tend to outperform those momentum names. So uh, that's that's part of the fun of it. Thanks for that comment, Daniel. We help you cut through the noise. We help you cut through the clutter. We are actually here for you. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at info at seveninvesting.com. That's usually Steve. Uh, that's for questions about the site, questions about being a member. In general, we're probably not going to research a stock for you. If you want to share your opinions on something, that's great. Uh, but really, it's for questions like that. Now, if you hit us up at 7investing on Twitter, that's more of a social format where we might talk about companies if they happen to be in our wheelhouse or something we're working on. But if we ignore you, if we don't, please realize that we love every single one of you. We just don't know every company or sometimes there's a reason why we're not. Maybe it's an active pick. Maybe it's one we're considering for a pick. So we respond a lot. We are all on Twitter. I am pretty sure there was no point this weekend, Friday or Saturday or Sunday night, where I didn't interact with one of you on Twitter or Slack after 10 o'clock at night. So this is not a team that gets a lot of sleep. That being said, we have run out of time. Thank you, everybody, for watching. We will be back Wednesday. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.